It's the 11th. Okay. Congregational meeting is on February the 11th. And I don't, there may be one or two things we vote on. So if you're not a member, you can become a member. And then you can be involved with the business of the church. And that follows the morning worship service on Sunday the 11th. So that's going to be a, a busy week. And that's the other announcement. Just I made this announcement the other day, but not all of you were here, is that on that week of following the congregational meeting, the week of Valentine's Day, so you can just lock that in, that Wednesday night, that Tuesday night, we're not going to have Bible class. On Wednesday night, we're going to have a, a special a presentation from Olivier uh, Melnick, who is with Friends of Israel. Uh, he's moved down to the Dallas area, so he's accessible. And his sort of, his area of, his forte is on anti-Semitism. And there's so much going on. I've listened to a couple of of, um, webinars the last couple of weeks just on anti-Semitism. And if y'all aren't watching three webinars and listening to four podcasts a day, you're not up to date on anything that's going on. And um, there's just a lot going on, and you, you, th- that's where you learn the news, you know. So get get with you know some of these organizations, and I'll try to print something with some links, and you can go watch some things. But it's just um, it's just really important to understand what's going on because what you're getting in the main mainstream news and the secondary mainstream news is not what you're getting on the podcasts and the, and the webinars. That really gets you clued into what's what's happening around the world. So Olivier is going to talk about anti-Semitism. And Thursday night, Yoram Edinger, who's retired Israeli ambassador to, uh, he retired with the rank of ambassador. He was a consul general here in Houston in the late 80s. He's spoken here several times, and he will speak. And we're inviting folks from Beth Yashurn to, to come also and join us. So it'd be nice if we had more than a dozen people here that that Thursday night. And then on Friday night, we're going to try to go over to Beth Yashurn as well to have a group that goes over, just meets over there. You know, it's Friday evening, there's traffic and it's over by Meyerland. And and that'd be really good. It's a show of support by having, uh, you know, Christians who support Israel, love the Jewish people, show up over there at an event like that. And uh, it really encourages them. This is a time when, when the Jews are really down. Uh, as I said the other night, they, they're Jews that are a- asking themselves questions. Should I have a menorah out? Should I have a, a mezuzah on my door? Should I uh, make it known, make it evident that I'm Jewish? I've got to be careful. I know Jewish men who've never considered carrying a handgun who want to get trained tactically. It's that it's serious, very, very serious. And so the fact that we would consider going over there and show that we care about them and that we're for for you know we're philo-Semitic and we're pro-Israel means a lot to them. So I think this is a just builds a bridge. It's a good thing. So those are two announcements. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. 
For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege that we have to serve you, to have the privilege of you using us in ways that uh, we can't even imagine as visual, visible testimonies to the unsaved community around us as we are lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And Father, you also use us in verbalizing our faith giving an answer for the hope that is in us, telling others about uh, Jesus as the Savior of the world who died for our sins. So, Father, we pray that you will just continue to use us in those ways. Father, we're also thankful uh, just for this church, the congregation, for all that uh, we mean to one another and that uh, you are working through us. That is tremendously encouraging. And, Father, as we study your word tonight, help us to understand these things and, and uh, help putting things together as we understand your, your plan for us and how to think biblically. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One other announcement, and that is that Arlene Carner went to be with the Lord early this morning. And I've had no news whatsoever about any memorial service or anything like that, but we will communicate that uh, if and when we get that information. All right, well, let's open our Bibles to Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 3, starting a new chapter. Philippians chapter 3, as we continue our study. So we're halfway through Philippians, and we've done, this is lesson 61. So... Uh, we are making uh, making some progress. So just to remind you a little bit about the structure and the purpose for this epistle as Paul is writing a thank you letter, as we studied last time, Epaphroditus is a leader in the church in Philippi, and they sent him with a financial gift uh, to bring to the Apostle Paul and their support for him as he's not able to do anything to work or to raise funds or anything like that under house arrest in Rome. And so uh, once Epaphroditus got there, he came down uh, with some unknown disease that almost took his life, but the Lord was gracious, answered people's prayers, answered Paul's prayers, and he was restored to health. That he and Timothy, as well as Paul himself, were examples of the emphasis in the first part of this, uh, or second part of this verse, rather. In Philippians 1.27, Paul writes at the beginning, this introduces the beginning of the main body of the epistle. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. Right there you get the two big themes, unity and steadfastness. With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 28 says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Now that's foreshadowing because when we get to chapter 3, we began to focus on these adversaries, that there are these 
um, adversaries they face. They, one side comes from the uh, group that are known as Judaizers. That is a group of of uh, Jews that are saying Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's great, but you need to keep the law. You need to either keep the law in order to be saved or you need to keep the law in order to have spiritual life. We'll get into all of that. That's a major reason for Paul writing Galatians. Galatians was probably the first epistle that he wrote, and that was the focal point. This same group, they followed Paul everywhere, and they were a tremendous adversary. And so Paul has to warn them about that, and he warns them about that. And then he's going to get down, and he's going to, and I'm not sure if he's talking about the same group or a different group, but he talks about those who, um, whose God, in verse 19, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. And this could refer to a group of Gentiles. And what he's saying there is they've made themselves their own God. Their God is their belly. It's themselves. They worship themselves. They're self-absorbed. Sound familiar? And so there's a lot here that we can, uh, that we can learn. As we look at this section, and Paul says, stand fast in one spirit, he uses this word on the left, stako, which means to stand firm, to be single-minded or dependable or faithful, focused, persevering in your uh, chosen course of action and not wavering due to opposition. And so you do have opposition at that time, do opposition from within the church and also coming from outside of the church. So Paul has, in this epistle, challenged the Philippians uh, to quit. I still didn't check that spelling. To quit uh, being self-absorbed in pursuing their own agendas and to pursue Christ-like character of humility and service to the body of Christ. And he gives these four examples. Now, I want to say something about example two and that illustration of Paul pouring himself out like a drink offering. It's amazing. I've gone through a number of commentaries, and they just kind of ignore the libation offering. And they'll say they poured it out on the altar. And there were a few that said that part of the reason was that they would pour it out and it would cause the the flame on the burnt offering to uh, flame up. But somebody caught that in the alcohol content of what they had for either wine or strong drink, which was really a word shakar for barley beer, uh, wasn't high enough to where it would flame up. And so that was it was just a picture of pouring yourself out, giving all of yourself, to uh, to the service of the Lord. So we get now into chapter 3, and the focus is standing firm against error. There's a lot of interesting and fun stuff here. As an exegete, I've used this teaching Greek before in Greek exegesis, and it, it's challenging in places, but it also brings in a lot of Jewish background material in relation to the life of the Apostle Paul, and also because this is a focus in these Jewish background. I'm not sure if they're believers or not, but they have adopted a legalism that is destructive to 
grace and it's destructive to the biblical teaching on the Christian way of life. Now, part of the reason that we get into this is that throughout the history of Christianity, there have always been attacks from within the church and from outside of the church. And so you have to be aware the attacks that come from outside of the church are the various hostile worldviews. For example, in the early church, uh, from outside of the church, you had the, um, especially after the destruction of the temple, you had the predominant teaching of the Pharisees. That survived. Uh, The teaching of the Sadducees did not survive. Nobody has any hope in a theology that says that, well, there's no resurrection from the dead, there's no angels, there's no future. I mean, there's no hope there. So nobody wanted to carry on with the Sadducees' belief. But the Pharisees were really the the better of the two. Uh, I had lunch today with Randy Price, and he said, yeah, the Pharisees were the good guys, relatively speaking. And um, that's why Jesus was so hard on them, was because they were close but they weren't there because of legalism. And there are a lot of bodies of Christians that are that way. And so this is an error that comes up within Christianity. You have legalism. But outside of the church, you also have problems. Outside of the church today, we have, we have a, a plethora of worldviews. We don't just have the modernists because you have a lot of people who still have more of a modernist worldview, which takes God out of the picture, and man can basically solve all of his own problems through the use of reason and logic. But that's basically been rejected by postmodernism, that you can't arrive at truth through the use of reason and logic. Reason and logic gave us World War One and World War Two. And we really don't want to go through those kinds of things again. So we're going to go into a system of pure relativism. And that's going to give us anarchy. And that's going to lead to a collapse of Western civilization unless the Lord intervenes. But those are basically the options. So we have those external worldviews and derivatives of them that come up in the form of of uh, Marxism and Freudianism, Darwinism, all of these isms mix, get involved in the mix. And so it's important to understand what they are and what their uh, characteristics are because we are all influenced by them. We're influenced prob- by these pagan worldviews maybe as much as anybody in the ancient world was or more because we have social media and we have television, we have radio, we have films, and these are written by people who hold to these, uh, deeply to these anti-American, anti-biblical worldviews, and we are influenced by them in a lot of uh, subtle, subtle ways. And so we have these enemies that are outside the church, and usually the enemies that are inside the church have taken these external ideologies and they have uh, put them into the church in some way, shape, or form. So the role of the pastor, as is defined in Ephesians 4, 11 and following, is to uh, equip the saints. We'll go to verse 12. The gift of pastor teachers is for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service. 
So my job is to equip you for the work of service, and that covers a broad category. It covers everything from evangelism to ministering to those who are in need, uh, people who are shut-ins, folks who may be in assisted living or nursing homes. It has to do with teaching and training children. Uh, that's one of the most important uh, jobs in the church is the training of the next generation. And that doesn't start when they get old enough for you to communicate to them in more than two-syllable words. It starts when they can barely understand yes and no. They understand no usually a lot better than they understand yes. And that's important. And we need uh, some volunteers to help out in the nursery. And we need volunteers to help out uh, with some of the younger kids so that they're, right now we have some of their parents are doing it. Well, their parents are doing those kids, you know, the other six days of the week. They need to be in Bible class getting the teaching of the Word. And so we need to be helping them. So that's important. My job is to equipped saints, and that's what we get from the pulpit for the work of service, for the purpose. The first level of purpose is to edify or build up spiritually the body of Christ, and that comes as a result of our study of God's Word. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in each one of us to take what is being taught. You may hear stuff that I teach here and there, and you go, I don't know how I'm ever going to use this. That's not your worry. Your job is to learn it, assimilate it, because a time will come when you'll be getting a pop quiz on it in, the, in, in life. And I uh, use an example of a young lady that was in the church in Connecticut, and she had heard me teach on things like the documentary hypothesis and radical feminism and all the isms and acts and spasms that are going on in the world today. And she thought, well, I've never run into anybody who held any of those things. And then the first week that she was off at the University of Connecticut, she was required to take a course on feminist studies, and she got hit with all kinds of stuff. And she came back and she said, now I know why you were teaching us all of that stuff. So you never know. So the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of service, to build up, strengthen, spiritually strengthen the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith. Notice that emphasis on unity. What is Paul emphasizing in Philippians chapter 2? Unity, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have that um, illustration of Christ in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. And then the next level of purpose in verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. See, that's dealing with the false teachers. That's what's happening. That's another way of saying be steadfast. How are you steadfast? Because you take the time to be in Bible class regularly. You're studying on your own the rest of the time, having time in God's Word, reading and you grow and mature so that you are strengthened in these areas. And then the various winds of false doctrine, the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting are things that don't get to you. 
So it's the same themes, basically, in Philippians and in Ephesians. So part of the primary role of the pastor-teacher is also stated in Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, and that means to encourage, it also means to challenge people, uh, and convict those who contradict. So that's dealing with the false teachers and training the people to be able to deal with the false doctrines and the false teachers. A great quote I first heard about 40 or 50 years ago from Charlie Clough is this quote from Martin Luther. It's a well-known quote. He said, and I'm going to read it slow, pay attention. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on the battle on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. In other words, if you're defending every part of the fortress except the place that's being attacked, you're going to lose the battle. So we have to understand the places where we're being attacked, and that's not always fun. I remember after 9-11, I was personally very irritated because there were a lot of other things I wanted to learn and study other than Islam. And I remember about four years ago, I was pretty irritated because I didn't want to have to go read a bunch of stuff on critical race theory and Marxism and a lot of these other things. I would much rather have taught other things. But those are the places where the battle is being fought. That's where our fortress is being attacked. And we are not equipped for all of those things, but we should be. So it's the responsibility of the teachers in the church to teach and train these things. We're in this battle. We've got enemies in inside the church and outside the church and ideologies that are destructive to biblical Christianity. If you think back historically, after the Reformation, Satan's attack on the Western church was the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, what happens is instead of giving the Bible and God's word the place of authority, Science got the place of authority. Man's reason has the place of authority. And so if the Bible said something you didn't understand, then you'd say, well, maybe that's not quite right, so we'll, we'll have to, that maybe means something else, rather than saying, I just have to wait till I understand it. But my reason is not the ultimate authority. It's like what we studied, uh, we've studied in the Garden of Eden when the serpent said to Eve said, you know, God didn't tell you the truth. If you eat that, you won't die. She should have said, just just wait here for a moment. I'm going to go consult with God and see what he says about this. You've made a claim. I'm going to go talk to him first. And see, what we do is we hear all kinds of claims against Christianity, and we just fall for it. 
we repeat Eve's problem again and again and again and again. And instead of trusting God over our feelings and over our thoughts, we just go right right along with it because that's the path of least resist, resistance. So the Enlightenment gave birth to scientism, which was almost a re- making science a religion. And that was the essence of what was called modernism. And modernism held sway till the end of the 19th century. And the end of the 19th century wasn't 1899 or 1900. It was 1914 to 1918 when World War I occurred and modernism with all the modern weapons and all the modern technology of that time slaughtered the flower of Europe's youth on the fields of Europe. And it was horrific and then that happened again in World War Part Two, and Europe is so traumatized by all of this, they'll do anything and give up anything to maintain the modicum, a modicum of peace. And that's governed European politics for the last 60, 70, 70 years. So the Enlightenment gave birth to scientism, and scientism gave birth to what it referred to as uh, critical theories. Now, I don't mean critical theory in the way it's used with critical race theory. I'm using it in the sense that it was used critical thinking in regards to the Scripture. This led to the denial of Mosaic authorship. Now, follow my reasoning here. So if you deny Mosaic authorship, that may not sound like a big deal, but then you have to deny the historicity of anything related to Moses. Moses going up on Mount Sinai and getting the law. Moses uh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses leading them to the edge of the promised land. Moses giving the instructions on what they should be. Above all, Moses is following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is always a reminder of the covenant that God made first with Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob. So at the core of this critical thinking about the Bible is really a destruction of the purpose and the identity of Israel as a people. If you take the Pentateuch away and it's not written by Moses and it's really just a bunch of legend, then who are the Jews anyway? Well, they're just a problem people. The core of adopting all of this critical thought is anti-Semitism. It is, it is against Israel. It was hostile to everything that was said in the Bible about the importance of Israel. And what is so sad is it destroyed uh, the faith of a lot of Jews in their historical foundations. And that's where you get, I mentioned this the other night, that's where you get Reformed Judaism. It's, it's, it's just the, having the forms of the history of the traditions, but no, you don't believe any of the substance. You don't believe Moses existed. You don't believe Joshua existed. You don't really believe God gave you the land. You don't believe there's a Messiah coming. N- none of those things are part of, of the life of most, most Jews. So the Enlightenment gave birth to critical theories which destroyed the foundations of the Old Testament and led to an increase in anti-Semitism as exhibited in the Holocaust. 
It also gave birth in the 19th century to these wonderful worldviews such as Marxism, Darwinism, uh, the deification of sociology and psychology, all of which are built on anti-biblical presuppositions. They have views of mankind where the problem is something other than sin. All, almost all modern psychology has its presuppositional roots in Sigmund Freud, who hated with a passion both the Old Testament of Judaism and the New Testament of Christianity and sought to do everything he could to give an alternate view of humanity to the human race to replace the Bible. He stated that. And we just bought into psychology. Well, we have a problem. Well, we need to go see a counselor. No, not really. You may need a little advice on this thing or that thing, and that's okay. But this idea of going to sessions with a counselor week after week, month after month, year after year, is hogwash. You need the truth of God's Word. That's what sets us apart. That's what sanctifies us. That's what Jesus said. You know the truth, and that'll solve your problems because you'll do things biblically or else you're in rebellion against God. So all of those things are the enemies that we have to deal with. And so today we just face a myriad of multiplications of all of these degenerate solutions uh, that mankind has come up with to make life work on man's terms and not on God's terms. Everything can basically be reduced to it's either the grace position of the Bible or it's the human viewpoint solution the demonic solution, the devil's solution of works. It's, it's really simple. People say, well, that's reductionistic. No, it isn't. It's what the Bible says. It's light versus darkness. It's truth versus error. It's wise versus foolishness. It's one or the other. It's, there's not a hundred options. There's one true option and everything else is false. If there's just a 2% arsenic in a glass of water, are you going to drink it? Because that's just really just a small amount. Or 2% cyanide, that's just a small amount, just a couple of drops. You want to drink some? Well, that's how most Christians are, they, they, except they have a solution that's about 30% biblical and 70% human viewpoint, toxic, self-destructive. And so we have to come to understand these things, and that's part of what Paul is addressing in this chapter is how we are to stand fast in the midst of the assaults that come. So he starts off here and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you... It is safe. What does he mean by this? Well, first of all, I'm going to give you a more literal, amplified translation on the first part. He starts off, finally, as as literally for the rest. This is a rather standard phrase in the Greek, and it doesn't mean finally as if you're like a lot of uh, preachers. They get about... 20 minutes into their message, and then they start saying, well, in conclusion, and an hour later, they're still in conclusion. 
this isn't uh, what Paul is saying. He's not saying, finally, he's saying for the rest. He's made point one, now he's going to make point two, and he's going to address that. And so again, he gives the command uh, to rejoice in the Lord. So this brings up a very important factor. Rejoicing in the Lord is a command here that we are to have joy in the Lord. Our life should be governed by the joy of the Lord. Uh, There are a number of times when Paul uses this phrase, finally, and, and he's just trying to draw our attention to what he is saying and to indicate that he's making a transition to this next topic. And one writer has said that uh, one paraphrase of this would be, find your chief joy in the Lord. With all this stuff that's going around, you need to find your joy in the, in the Lord, not on watching CNN or Fox News or uh, listening to all this craziness all the time and just getting discouraged. You need just ignore all the chatter and focus on the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. Rejoice in, in the Lord. And joy is one of the ten spiritual skills. I'm just going to quickly review these for you. That when we start watching all the crud on the news or we get out in the traffic, we get angry, we get upset, or we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed or on the wrong side of the cot or maybe you're sleeping on the floor and you're still on the wrong side of whatever, um, and you're in a bad mood, well, the first thing is you need to make sure you're right with the Lord. You need to confess sin. And that doesn't mean you just have to uh, beg and plead for God to forgive you because God has already taken care of that on the cross. The first category of forgiveness that we have is our positional forgiveness, which comes at the instant that we trust in Christ. But we have to get right with God again. And so we confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge it to him. And then we begin our life. We are to walk, but we're to walk by means of God, the Holy Spirit. When we're walking by means of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to fill us with his word. We'll get into that in a lot of detail when we get into uh, the next section in Ephesians chapter 5 on Sunday mornings. The The building blocks for the Christian life are these three. The faith rest drill means that we trust in God and we are going to rest. We're going to cast our care upon him because he cares for us. We are going to trust in the Lord with our whole heart. And therefore, we're going to rest and we're not going to succumb to worry, anxiety, frustration, and all of these other things. Second is grace orientation. We have to recognize God deals with us in grace. God is not like a Jewish mother trying to motivate us with guilt. He's motivating us with kindness and with his grace and with the truth. And we have to orient our thinking to grace. We have to orient our thinking with grace toward God. We do that when we accept the free gift of salvation. But then we also have to orient in our day-by-day walk by grace. And in doing that, we have to learn God's Word. That's when we're talking about Ephesians chapter 4.12, we are to be equipped through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is doctrinal orientation. And as we orient our thinking to the Word of God and we operate on the basis of grace toward God and toward others, 
and we trust God, then we begin to realize that God has a destiny for each and every believer. And eventually we're going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, and that impacts our our role in eternity future that are, that begins with the millennial kingdom. And so after that, we develop a deeper love for the Lord. We have a personal love for God that impacts our ability to love one another as Christ has loved us. It's a biblical love for all and a Christian love for other believers. Jesus said, love one another. He wasn't talking about the unbelievers. You know, other passages quote uh, from uh, Leviticus that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, and our neighbor may be a believer or an unbeliever, but when Jesus says, love your na- uh, love one another as I loved you, that's a more difficult command. It can only be produced by God, the Holy Spirit. And then we're to focus on Christ. He is our, our focal point. We are to emulate him. The God, the Holy Spirit, is producing Christ-likeness in us. And on top of all this, developing along with it, it you don't have to wait till you master everything else and then you have joy, but that's that's sort of the ultimate. You mature in all of these over time. And James starts off, the epistle of James is written to his readers about how, how to handle the pressures of life. And what's the first thing he says? Count it all joy. Consider it all joy. That's the same thing that Paul is saying here in Philippians 3.1, to rejoice in the Lord. James said it by saying, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And I don't know anybody yet that wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to see what kind of test the Lord's going to throw my way this morning and this afternoon so that I can grow a little bit in the spiritual life. But we're to consider it joyful. It's sort of like people who say, well, you know, the good things happen to them, nice things happen to them during the day. And you'll say, well, God is really good. Well, God is good all the time. God is good when you've been hit in an automobile accident and you've been severely injured and you're in the hospital for six weeks or six months or six years. God is still good. He never changes. He's immutable. His goodness is there forever and ever. And so whatever happens, God is still good. And so we need to learn to trust him with whatever happens. Now, the problem we have is our sin nature. This is going to be important for the laying the groundwork for what we're going to see here in terms of these these trends. The trends in religion, not Christianity, the trends in religion are the same trends of our sin nature. So the sin nature is identified as the flesh or the body of sin in many passages in Scripture. Flesh can also refer to just the physical skin, but uh, in a lot of places, it also means the sin nature. So there's the sin nature. There are two areas of operation in the sin nature. The upper area is the area of strength. That's where we're trying to really do good to impress God. So this is human good. It's produced, you know, a lot of unbelievers can show a lot of kindness and a lot of love and a lot of generosity, but that's just the product of their sin nature. Because that's all they've got. They don't have 
a, a they're not regenerate. They they don't have a new new nature. We they have just the sin nature. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have personal sins, and this is the area of weakness. You have sins of the tongue, where you are. Uh, saying things you shouldn't say, lying maybe, you're being uh, bitter towards people and voicing it, you're slandering people, uh, you're saying things you shouldn't. And those are the polar opposites. Some people tend to be really good on the human good end, but it all comes out of your little nasty sin nature. At the core of your sin nature are the lust patterns. That's your motivator. Your lust. There's all kinds of lust. There's power lust. There's approbation lust. You want approval. You want people to pat you on the back. You want to hear good things about what you've done. You just you just need that that approval. Other people are driven by power. Some people are driven by various uh, lusts of sexual lust or lust for some sort of chemical to deaden the pain and misery of their life. So they they trend towards uh, getting drunk. Uh, alcoholism is defined in our culture as a disease, but it's not a disease. You don't catch it. You can't take a pill to kill it. Uh, it's a sin described in the Bible, not drinking alcohol, but being an, being a drunk and being dependent upon pharmaceuticals. Pharmakeia is the Greek word for that's translated sorcery in the works of the sin nature. And so that gets all of the um, people who can't get up or go anywhere in the morning unless they have a, uh, you know, a, a, a hit off off of uh, smoking dope or whatever or some other drug or shooting up, and then they can face life because they've deadened the pain. So you have these trends, opposite trends. One area is towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. I taught this one time, and somebody was here and said, what is antinomianism and what is licentiousness? somebody who's very well college educated and very smart said that. So I figured if that person didn't know what licentious or antinomian meant, I figure a lot of other sheep don't either. Antinomian is you don't believe in any kind of absolutes. You don't believe in any kind of law. You're just going to do whatever you think makes you feel good. And it doesn't matter. You have you don't have a moral compass. And licentiousness just means you can do whatever you want to do and it's okay. A lot of people like that are in prison. And that leads to immoral degeneracy. So now we can all understand that, that people who do that, they're immoral. They have no moral compass. But in the opposite trend, you get involved with asceticism. You're going to do things to impress God. You're going to go off and live in a uh, maybe a commune or you're going to live in a monastery or you're going to find other ways you're going to make money to give to charities and uh, you're going to have a really, really strict uh, moral code, but it's all built on, on arrogance. And, that, and because it's from your sin nature, it's moral degeneracy. Now, no, most people don't think, how, how do you, I thought degenerates were only immoral. No, there's a lot of moral degenerates. The Pharisees were the most moral people in Israel at the time of John the Baptist and Jesus, and they both referred to them as a the brood of vipers. 
Now, what does that mean, brood of vipers? Brood is the offspring of something. Vipers refer to serpents. So if brood is the seed of a serpent, what does that remind you of? Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the serpent would uh, bite the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. So Jesus is, and John the Baptist were not trying to win friends and influence people. They didn't read Dale Carnegie's book. They're, they're out there telling people just how it is, and these religious moral leaders are the seed of, serpent, of, of Satan. See, that's moral degeneracy because you think your morality is going to get you to heaven. Okay, so that gives us a pretty good understanding of what God's provided for us and what we think we can rely on in order to have joy. So Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, be joyful in the Lord. And then he says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, I'm going to retranslate this. For the rest, my brothers, you all rejoice in the Lord. For me, it's not tedious to continue to repeat what I'm writing to you. Because we all learn things by repetition. We hear it over and over again. And I don't mean by just saying it this Tuesday night and then Thursday night and then Sunday and saying the same thing over and over again. But we forget after a little while, and then, you know, we'll come back around to a topic and go through it again. We say, oh, yeah, I remember that. I've forgotten about that. I need to pay attention to that verse. That's a good verse. So that's what he's doing here, actually, is he is going to be repeating, uh, repeating certain things. For example, he repeats uh, the command to rejoice. He's going to repeat it again in 4.4, but he has, re- he has already stated this in Philippians 2.18, where he said, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. And, and so that's just about uh, 12 verses back. And then in 2.28, which is just a couple of verses back, he said, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him, referring to Epaphroditus, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. So Paul just keeps telling them that they need to be joyful. They need to be joyful in the Lord, not just gen it up within their own emotional well-being. And then second, three times in this next verse, he says, beware. And it, a good translation would be just to watch out. Okay, so in verse 2 we read, beware of dogs. What do you think he means by that? Well, dogs is a derogatory term. I mean, today, today's self-righteous uh, leftists would call him a, a racist. But they're the real racist. See, that's the same kind of thing that, that, that happens as you start projecting your sins onto other people. And that's what we see today. All of these uh, kids in, in, in universities, that they, they are, uh, everybody else is a racist. Uh, white people are inherently racist. That's the most racist thing you can say. But they're they're calling black white and white black. They they don't know how to think anymore. They they don't understand reality anymore. They're living in their own little um, uh, their own little fantasy world. So this first 
uh, box here tells us this was a derogatory term the Jews used for the Gentiles. Even Jesus did. They, they would um, refer to them as dogs. And Paul flips it on the, on the uh, Judaizers. He calls them, them dogs. So he's saying, you self-righteous Jews, you're, you're so self-righteous, you call the Gentiles dogs? Well, you're the real dogs because of your legalism and because your hostility to grace and because you're the ones, it's your way of thinking that crucified the Lord. In Isaiah 56.10, coming from Isaiah, so, so again we have, we have a writer of Scripture under the inspiration of Scripture using the term dogs in a derogatory way towards Gentiles. My, my, my. Isaiah 56.10, the watchmen here are the priests and religious leaders, the false religious leaders, the false priests, the ones who are leading Israel into idolatry at the time of uh, just before, about 100 years before the Babylonian invasion. And uh, so he says his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. That's how Isaiah pictures the false prophets. The next term is to beware of evil workers. Now, Paul calls the Judaizers deceitful workers in 2 Corinthians 11.13. He doesn't hold back. In Matthew twenty three twenty five, now that's a very interesting chapter. If you remember when we studied in, in Matthew, this is the chapter where Jesus pronounces, depending on the text you use, uh, seven or eight woes. He's announcing judgments against the Pharisees because of their hypocritical arrogance. And in Matthew twenty three twenty five, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup. In other words, you go through external ritual, one of which will be circumcision. And uh, he says you, you go through the, uh, this external cleansing, but the inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You're, you're motivated by your sin nature. They weren't saved. They were just arrogant, spiritually dead Pharisees. Now, what's interesting here in take this verse is part of the problem that I mentioned earlier that you have with the false teachers here that the Philippians are warned about. Uh, down in verse 19, uh, verse 18 calls them enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. They're self-absorbed. So that's the evil workers. He's warning them about them. And then the next category are the mutilators. And the mutilators, um, they insist on circumcision for either salvation or sanctification. Colossians 2.11, Paul says, In him, in Christ... We were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. This is the spiritual circumcision is the one that matters. And the circumcision made without hands by putting off 
the body of the sins of the flesh. So you see right away there's some sort of symbolism going on with the removal of the flesh in circumcision as an, an image or picture of what happens when, when we are delivered from the tyranny of the sin nature with the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Romans 6. So there we come to Philippians 3.3 3, where we read, For we are the circumcision. So circumcision has two aspects to it in the Old Testament. The one is the physical act, and the other is spiritual circumcision. Guess which one is the significant one? Not the physical picture, but the reality of spiritual circumcision. They had spiritual circumcision is spoken about in Deuteronomy. So there was a clear understanding that they were to be spiritually circumcised, and that's what physical circumcision was a picture of. So this brings us to the point of talking about what the Bible teaches about circumcision. And if I start this, and it's almost 830, if I start this, we're going to get through about a point and a half, and then next week I'm just going to have to review it again. So I think that I will wait until next time. We'll just end a couple of minutes early tonight, and we'll come back and look at this next time. But this is important because it's going to run through the first part of this this uh, section. If you were to look at a at a Greek or at a Greek text or certain English translations that paragraph, they will uh, they will paragraph verse two through verse eleven as one paragraph. That's a lot of information, but it's all tied together, and it starts. We're talking about circumcision. So this is representative of the legalistic, ritualistic, arrogant approach to life. And some people associate that with conservatives. Some people associate that with the conservatives because they believe in a list of absolute right and wrong. But it just, while they're not paying attention, just take a look at the leftists. They have their list of right and wrong. And if you violate their list of right or wrong, then they are going to uh, embarrass you and they're going to go after you with everything that they have because you're not living up to their standards. And so just because they're on the left and they believe in moral relativism doesn't mean they don't have their own absolute standards. Everybody has absolute standards. It's just whether you want the absolute standards of Christianity or the absolute standards of paganism. Christianity produces a culture that has significance and value and freedom and liberty. But paganism always produces Hamas. It produces the atrocities of the uh, Native American aborigines in the 17th and 18th century who did exactly the same thing to each other that Hamas did to the Jews on October 7th. You name the atrocity, the horrific event, the mutilation, and I can find evidence of how the Cherokees did it or the Comanches did it or the... Uh, um, 
any number of that go up to the northeast and you've got the Mohawks and a number of other tribes up there. They all did it just like that. And then they would go back and they didn't have social media. So what would they do? They would build a big campfire and then they would come out and compose poems and songs about their atrocious things that they did to the other tribe. And then they would basically chant about it and create all these songs. They were just posting it on the Facebook that they had at that time. That's the same thing that Hamas did. They went around with their little GoPro cameras and then they posted them up on on all the social media sites. Paganism always produces the same end result of chaos and the denigration of humanity. And that's what we see. So we need to study these things. So let's um, close in prayer and then we'll come back and lay the foundation next time with, on circumcision. Father, we thank you so much that we understand grace, that you have revealed this to us. And Father, this isn't because we're so special or because we're so intelligent, but it's because we just made the simple decision to trust you. And um, Father, that's not always easy, but you have provided for us the information that we need that we can live a stable life even in the midst of the chaos that's going on around us and we can have joy. We are to live our lives rejoicing in the Lord. And that doesn't mean emotional silliness. It just means having an attitude of tranquility and contentment and joy that we are part of the body of Christ and have an eternal future secured by our Lord. And so, Father, we pray these things that you would challenge us by what we're studying to drive deeper into your word, become consistent in our daily Bible reading and Bible study, and and focusing on the long-term eternal results and not just the day-to-day things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.